Hello and welcome to the Jewish's Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso, and I am the creator of Jewish's, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week, I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. I know it's been a while. I took some time off for the holidays, plus I got a new mic and a new setup, so hopefully the audio is better, and I just needed some time after the last episode. And considering I have all the new equipment, Mercury is in retrograde, so if something goes wrong, I'm blaming it there, but please do let me know. I appreciate all the feedback. This episode has been in the works for quite some time. I have been asked to cover death and dying since the very first time I posted a blog. And when I announced the podcast, it was one of the very first follower requests. I want to remind you all that I have a Patreon where you can support me and therefore support the podcast. And you can also request specific episodes. If you have a topic you really want to hear me cover, you can request it there as well as showing your support. I've had some people ask, the lowest tier is as low as $1 per month. I think those are all of the housekeeping notes, so I'm going to keep doing what I usually do, and I'm just going to jump right in. I was once told that researching Judaism is like the ocean. There is always more to learn, particularly when it comes to death, dying, and the afterlife. This is episode one of three in a series all about death just in time for Halloween. (laughs) I'm kidding. They're in no way related, but someone pointed it out. And now I just can't stop thinking that I'm doing it right in time for that holiday. This first podcast and the relating blog post are going to cover attitudes. Did I accidentally mute myself? No. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, This first podcast and the correlating blog post are going to cover attitudes and conceptions around death including omens, uh, the angel of death, and a couple other things. Um, I will be covering things like the afterlife, reincarnation, burial rituals in the next episodes. Don't worry. There is, of course, the trigger warning for death, burial, and things of that nature for this episode. Unfortunately, we can't talk about death without talking about dying. I won't go into detail on anything too graphic or violent. As always, you don't want to hear it, and I don't want to have to say it. So with all of those housekeeping notes out of the way, let's start. Death is a universal experience. It's one of the things that connects all people around the world. It is natural for each and every culture to develop its own unique perception and practices in response to it. I would say that Judaism's approach to death is or feels unique in conjunction to the very Western Christian perceptions of death presented to most of us in the Western world. I remember the first time that I realized my family's way of approaching death was different than some of my classmates and my friends, and it felt strange to hear their mourning process 
hear the things they said and the way they dealt with grief. I'll touch on that more in the next episode, but honestly, the lack of sh- a shiva or mourning process was very confusing to me. And the way that my family talked about death was much more matter of fact than some of the ways my friends dealt with it. And that was always it was always hard for me to deal with because I didn't know how to talk to them about it. Oh, I forgot one more thing. Before we dive in, it is important to note that Judaism is extremely, extremely vast. Like I said, it's like the ocean. I literally cannot cover every single opinion or attitude on death, as there are as many opinions as there are Jews. I've attempted to cover a wide variety of perspectives, including ones that I don't believe, um, from different Jewish movements and groups. But if there's one that I've missed that you feel is really important to include, please feel free to email me. Uh, my email is z at jewitches.com, and I will include a correction in the next episode. Or whichever episode is recorded next after this is live. So let's start off with one of my favorite quotes on death from the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis. And that says, the Kotzka Rebbe compared death to moving from one home to another. And this has always been extremely comforting to me. I think it's beautiful and gentle and tender. And it reminds me very much of how I do see death. Moving from one home to another feels more accurate than some horrific, terrifying thing, some terrifying, horrible experience. And obviously, this is my own perception. This is not a commentary on Judaism as a whole, but I do think it's beautiful, and I wanted to mention it. The origins of death within Judaism are found within the Torah, specifically in Genesis or Bereshit. As a result of humans choosing to eat from the tree of knowledge, humans are no longer living eternally, but rather have an end to their lives. It is generally agreed on that this is the origin of human mortality, but the reason why it's the origin is debated, like all things Jewish. Some believe that it is a natural consequence of knowledge that you have to, there has to be an end to it. Others think it's a more punitive punishment Death is the punishment for the transgression of defying God and eating from the tree of knowledge. Um, but also, when we look back on our texts, it was believed that humans lived far longer than we do today uh, during the time of the Torah. For example, Abraham and Sarah lived until they were well into their hundreds. Sarah even had a baby at 90. So we see a shift in how we see death and when death comes, and that does change the way we look at it. You know, even in the modern day, right, a death that is super young feels more tragic. It feels more devastating. You know, how many times do you know someone who says she lived a good life after someone old passed away versus when someone young dies, they say this is a tragedy. She was so young. So I do think that's important to know. If we're reading these stories where they believe people live very long, it's going to color the way they deal with death, in my personal opinion. Death is the end of life on this earth, but not the end of the life of the soul. And that's a concept we will be covering intensely in part three. I only mention it because I feel it's important to to acknowledge it right off the bat. Death doesn't mean the end of everything for a lot of Jews. Alternatively, for some Jews, it is the end of everything. 
we, like most people, created superstitions surrounding death, when it happened, how it happened, who it was going to happen to. And these were means of coping. I remember I took a fascinating course, anthropology course called The Anthropology of Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft. One of my favorite courses to date, obviously. And we spent quite a while looking specifically at death practices from around the globe. And I was fascinated by them. There's cultures that feel that you keep the body and you take care of the body as you would have if the person had remained alive. Others have mourning processes that last a year. If it's anyone in your family versus like in Judaism, where we have mourning practice for a year for a parent. So there are so many death practices. And there are a lot of similarities. And then there's also a lot of differences. And one of the quotes that I remember, and I'm not quoting this correctly, nor can I remember who said it, but it was roughly along the lines of, we all die, so we all find a way to deal with it. Uh, Some of the coping mechanisms, theories, or attitudes I'm going to talk about in this episode have faded in popularity. So if you're unfamiliar with them, it might be one that has no, it's not really used anymore. It's not really talked about anymore, but others you will probably be very familiar with. Um, Some people don't really think about the origins of their beliefs. I know someone who, you know, you always know that person who doesn't bother to ask where something came from. So you might hear the origin of a belief here. Uh, Even if you just think of it as like a tradition and don't really think about it more. According to the Talmud, there are 903 ways to die. But rest assured that according to Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, it is believed that in Judaism that no righteous person dies before another is born. And this is very comforting to some people. When a loved one dies, you you hope they're righteous. And when they pass on, you feel the comfort in knowing that a new righteous person has already stepped into their shoes which is ironic because that's not something Jews typically do. You don't wear the shoes of someone who died. To quote, it is also taught in Baraita, 903 types of death were created in the world. As it is stated, issues of death and that 903 is the numerical value of Totsaot. The Gemara explains that the most difficult of all these types of death is Krup, while the easiest is the kiss of death. Croup is like a thorn entangled in wool fleece, which when pulled backwards tears the wool. Some say that croup is like the ropes of the entrance, like ropes at the entrance to the esophagus, which would be nearly impossible to insert and excruciating to remove. The kiss of death is like drawing a hair from milk. One should pray that he does not die a painful death. Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak said, the time of finding refers to death. One should pray that when death comes, he will leave the world peacefully. The croup that is referred to here specifically refers to a disease that, not to go into too much detail, can be fatal in both children and adults. I was surprised to find out that roughly 200,000 Americans get croup every year. I remember croup being mentioned in a historical fiction that I read when I was seven or eight. I think it might have been an American Girl doll book, to be totally honest. Might have been American Girl doll. But for some reason, I was under some misguided conception that croup was like polio and had been largely eradicated. I was completely incorrect. 
Um, my education into illness aside, let's get back to the topic of death. Like all cultures, superstitions around death are pervasive. To quote, in the Talmudic tradition attributed to Rabbah of the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, remarks that if one dies between his 50th and 60th year, this is a death of excision, karet, spiritual death, or death at the hand of heaven. Excision was a serious punishment, directed by the Torah against those who sinned in particularly grievous ways. Thus, thus to say that such a death is a death of excision is to declare it unusual and especially lamentable. For this reason, when Rabbi Yosef reached his 60th birthday, he celebrated, saying, I have emerged from the danger of excision. Death at 50 to 60 was still thought of as an early death. Death at 70 was a death in old age, and death at 80 was a special strength, a kiss of God. Rabbi Hizda, according to the Talmudic record, lived 92 years. I want to be clear. This superstition does not mean that if someone you loved passed away at that age, that they were a bad person or that they were being punished by the divine. This is a superstition. This is a belief. Not all beliefs are true. Not all superstitions are true. Just believe because it was believed at one point by some people does not give it power, nor does it say anything about the person you cared about. But what were some of the other common omens, right? This is something that happened after death. What were the omens that people thought predicted death? Omens of death included the barking of dogs, the appearance of owls, ominous dreams, and seeing human shadows that lacked a head. Now, the headless shadows, as frightening as they sound and would be, were supposed to only be of the person that would die. So if you walked outside, even though you're standing in full sun, your shadow was missing its head, that would be considered an omen. When I first heard about this superstition, my brain immediately went to Peter Pan and how he had to stitch his shadow to his feet. And I, for some reason, picture just stitching your shadow right back on, uh, right back on its head. According to Rabbi Ronald H. Isaacs, a particular dream omen for death included seeing the words of a eulogy. If one sees the words of a funeral oration, mercy will be granted to him from heaven, and he will be redeemed. This is only if he sees the words in writing. If one in a dream answers, may his great name be blessed, he may be assured that he has a place in the world to come. Don't worry, we will discuss more about the world to come in the third and final installment of this series. Other omens included a person looking at their reflection in a mirror only to, or water or the reflection in general, only to find that the reflection had their eyes and mouth closed, even if the person had theirs open. So if you stood straight in front of a mirror with your eyes and mouth as wide as you could make it, your reflection would have it closed tightly. Frankly, this reminded me of Coraline or the TikTok trend that's going around of having your reflection in the mirror do something that's different than what you're doing. Oh, freaks me out a little bit. To continue, some have said that sneezing was a foreboding mention of death. The story is that until the time of Jacob, a person at the close of his life, close of his life sneezed and instantly died. Some speculate that this omen is the reason for saying bless you after sneezing, but this is largely unsubstantiated. Did some research, got down a rabbit hole, then realized the rabbit hole that I was down wasn't well-sourced. On another tangent regarding to sneezing, nothing makes me laugh more than hearing people say like gazoon tight or gazoon hate. I think the worst one I ever heard was gazoon height. That broke me. Um, 
especially because most people don't know what they're saying. Gesundheit literally means health in German. Gesund is healthy and Heit is state of being or hood. So like the, the Gesundheit is the state of being healthy. So the more you know. When one was physically dying, it was believed that they may say, see Adam or Adam, the angel of death or the Shrina, the divine presence. Suddenly seeing these figures was a clear sign of impending doom. And I always thought that was such an interesting omen of death because I feel like it's pretty clear if you see, you know, the angel of death. Yeah, we know what's going to happen there. But what if you're praying and suddenly the divine presence appears before you? Are you supposed to just be like, yep, I'm going to die now. And how would someone even know it's Adam? Is it a gut thing? Do you know you know, sometimes you see something and you just know what it is, even if you don't have a conscious reason to do so. Maybe it's like that. While clearly karet, which we discussed earlier, or excision, is not positive, and the omens feel very ominous, the general consensus on the Jewish opinion of death is far more positive than some other cultures' approach to passing over. To quote, in fact, classical Jewish literature, from the Bible through the Talmud and later writings, takes a consistently positive approach to the fact of death and the experience of mournings. There is no shortage of such writings, only a shortage of readers. For many, death in Judaism as is as it is in life, an active participation in the struggle. All throughout our Jewish lives, we are taught to wrestle with the divine, with our texts, with ourselves, and in the end, with death. Whoever comes out the victor is honorable, even if, in the end, death will always win. I specifically chose the word wrestle when I was writing this because even the word fight doesn't feel right. We are wrestling. And even if death comes out the victor, like it always will, we will still keep doing so. The goal is never to win permanently, unless you're in your evil villain arc to become immortal. But generally, we are satisfied with death becoming victorious, even if we work our hardest to fend off the day for as long as we can. And I want to be clear, while Judaism is a lot more positive about death than some other cultures, especially when it comes to the mourning process, Jews don't just accept death immediately, no matter the circumstances. We don't go like lambs to the slaughter. We don't just accept death. And I know someone's going to comment. I know some lambs fight back. So it's a, it's a phrase, I'm not saying that lambs do it either. Um, according to Rinaldo W. Siquiera, some parts of Judaism have conceptualized death as non-existence, the opposite of life. The person ceased breathing. Life was gone. The body decomposed and returned to dust. Nothing but gods and the survivor's memory of the dead person remained after death. And they say that the Torah expressly teaches that a dead person does not think, talk, feel, suffer, worship, or praise God. The dead do not participate in anything that is done in the world of the living. This is a clearly a very strong opinion and not one shared by all Jews, but I did choose to include it to show the wide range of opinions and thoughts that appear within our communities. While alive, Jews are commanded to honor and preserve the sanctity of life. One term for this is pikuach nefesh, which instructs Jews to live by the commandments, not die by them. And I talked about this concept on Twitter a while ago. Because this is something my mother says all the time. When we say you are to live by the commandments, not die by them, is that a dead Jew can't follow the commandments. If you are standing in a burning building on Shabbat and the 
you get in the car and you go. If you have to choose between, I don't know, going to synagogue on Shabbat and going to the hospital to be saved, you go to the hospital. I remember one time uh, there was a fire because I live in California and there are a lot of fires here. And despite the fact that they are not supposed to do things like drive a car, my ride drove the car up to the house and packed or to the, into the, you know, put all, all the Torahs into the car because the fire was going to threaten their lives. And they need to bring their safety things like passports and IDs and everything into the car to make sure that if it came to choosing between following the commandment of keeping the Sabbath or dying, they would choose life. We live by our commandments. We are not meant to die by them. This completely tangential, but for those of you who've watched Grey's Anatomy, which ironically, I think I mentioned this in like the next paragraph. Okay, we'll get there. I'll do it then. So life is sacred and we are to preserve life. Whether this is through the belief of saving a life is the most important commandment or physical actions like life, organ donation, Judaism wrestles with death until the very end. I want to give credit where credit is due. I was on TikTok, as always, and I saw a video from a creator, The Wild Amalia, who is discussing how Jews, Orthodox Jews specifically, are more likely to donate blood as well as donate organs. So I reached out to The Wild Amalia and they provided me with an article. And according to the article, it has been estimated that ultra-Orthodox Jews alone make up 17% of live altruistic kidney donations in the United States. If you're caught up in your Grey's Anatomy, that's why I mentioned it, or even better, or a doctor, you know that live altruistic kidney donation means that you are donating your kidney to a complete stranger. It's anonymous. You may never meet the person whose life you save, and they will never know who you are. It is also important to note that the vast majority of Jews in the U.S. are not ultra-Orthodox, or even Orthodox. So we don't know the exact percentage regarding how many Jews in total donate kidneys, not to mention other or other organs. I saw quite a few stories that how at the beginning of COVID and throughout, you know, the early stages of COVID, things like blood donations were needed and Jewish communities around the country rallied to donate blood. I mean, people were, there are articles written about it, you can Google it, that show that People were shocked at how quickly and how willing the Jewish communities were to come together and do these life-saving things that other people just don't want to do. Not to say that other people don't, but it's impressive to know that Jewish communities are so dedicated to this. And speaking of Grey's Anatomy, I'm sure most of you remember season one. There's an episode where I believe she calls herself Esther. They feature a Orthodox Jewish girl who needs a heart valve and they want to put a pig in her. And she says, no, you can't put it into me. And this is not something that is necessarily backed up by Jewish beliefs. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some movements within Judaism that may feel differently, but largely Jewish communities are fine with accepting a porcine valve to be put into you if it means saving your life. I'm on a roll of mentioning other Jewish creators today. There's a fantastic article on heyalma.com written by Shoshana Gottlieb, also known as Jewish Memes Only. 
on Instagram, and it's titled, Why Do Medical Dramas Have Consistently Terrible Plot Lines Around Orthodox Jews? And it goes over including this horrible Grey's Anatomy one that I'm talking about. We see this idea promoted a lot that Jews wouldn't do something to save their life, and it's just not true. We can go back to the topic at hand. When one is dying, it is customary to not be alone. Judaism is, after all, a team sport. Unlike some other religions, Judaism does not have official deathbed sacraments, but among many Jews, it is common to recite or have a rabbi recite the bidui before death. This confession is uh, concluded with the recitation of the Shema, which is arguably one of the most important of the Jewish prayers. Obviously, this is done when a person knows when they're about to die. Sudden deaths don't include this. I assume this would be clear when I wrote the blog post, but I got a few messages and decided that I should clarify here for people who might be confused. So let's come on to the topic of actively avoiding death, or more clearly, thwarting death when it has already been coming. While we accept that death is inevitable, that doesn't mean we won't fight like hell to put it off for as long as possible. Aside from obvious, obvious charms, prayers, and actions taking for long life, like tzedakah, Jews have developed quite a few unique means of avoiding death. Throughout Jewish culture, the importance of Jewish or Hebrew names cannot be understated. I have a specific blog talking about them. You can read more specifics on my blog on a blog post called Hebrew Names. But to put it lightly, Jewish names represent the essence of a person. According to Joshua Trachtenberg, a man's name is his person and his name is his soul. When someone is sick and dying, it is a tradition across many Jewish communities to rename them, either by adding a new name or uh, choosing a new name entirely. The Talmud discusses the name in regard to healing here. Four things annul the decree that seals a person's fate, namely alms, prayer, change of name, and change of deeds. The names added or changed often have etymology linked to health, happiness, and other good things. For example, Raphael is for refua, or cure, Chaim is for life, etc., etc. And to be clear, this doesn't necessarily mean legally changing your name. Your Hebrew name is used ceremonially, ritually, and by your community. You don't have to go to the DMV for this. One of the most important parts of the Hebrew name is that it is used and acknowledged by your community. Another common Jewish custom, found largely within Ashkenazi communities, but also within some others, is not to name your child after any living relative or person. Sephardim, however, will refrain to name their child after a living parent, but may name their child after another living relative. I know that there is an importance in naming a child after their grandparent, who may still be living. I have been guilty of saying that all Jews don't name after a living person, and that's just not the case. So I think it's important that, one, people know that, and we don't continue to spread that. So where do these traditions come from at all? Uh, especially in the fact that, in the conjunction with the fact that so many people and cultures name their children after themselves. Well, it is said to believe that the angel of death would only deliver its decree to the one named in the summons. So say a parent is ready for death. Well, the angel of death might falsely deliver it to the newborn. Alternatively, one Sephardic custom they read about in regards to thwarting the death of infants was that of quote unquote, selling a child. To be entirely clear, 
no children were actually sold. I want to make that extremely clear. If parents had a history of stillbirths, miscarriages, or infant deaths, they might pretend so their child to a friend for three days, during which the infant would be named Marco as a boy or Mercada for a girl. During the three days, they would the babies would be doted upon, fed, and cared for by this new family, one who had great luck and fortune with children. I would assume that this is in the hopes that the successful family's luck would rub off on them and the child would live. After those three days, the child would return to their family, and for the following three years, the family who pretend bought them would bring gifts and sweets on Purim to the baby. I thought that was a fascinating uh, custom that I didn't know about. According to Jewish Virtual Library, other methodologies of thwarting death, according to folkloric literature, included finding the, quote, herb of life or going on quests for immortality. Others conclude that the study of Torah and acts of piety, particularly tzedakah, are enough to divert the decree. In the numerous versions of the legend about the death of Moses, Moshe, Moshe succeeds in chastising Samael, who, came to, who comes to fetch his soul. Only God's promise that he himself would take the soul induces Moses to lay down his staff with the engraved ineffable name, which had made the angel of death flee in terror. This is my favorite story. Moshe just scolds death until he leaves him alone. It's like he asked for the manager. He literally tells off the messenger so hard that God, literally God, has to come and say, okay, I will take care of you personally. I, this is flabbergasting to me. It made me laugh so hard when I read it. Another one, sorry, I can't. It's just unbelievable. He yelled at the, the server so much that the manager had to come out. Something that also made me laugh in a is the strange, oddly specific belief that if a man is bitten by a deadly snake, if he is to reach the stream first, the snake dies. But if the snake reaches the stream first, it's the man who will die. And I have to say, it's, it's comical that a snake and a person have to race to a river. Or if they're not racing, does the man just stumble across one? How would he even know if he made it to the river first? Is it just if he dies... If he dies of a snake bite, did he like clearly lose kind of situation? Did they think that cleaning the wound in the river would help? I found no answers to my questions, which left me with more questions. Anyway, one of the most famous stories of Jews thwarting death is the story of Passover. When the Pharaoh calls for the death of all Jewish firstborn, the Jewish community took action. It is recorded in the Torah that the Jewish community took the blood of a sacrificed lamb, which technically could be a kid, meaning a baby goat, not a human child, and they painted it upon their doorways to thwart the entrance of the angel of death. When the angel of death saw the blood upon their doorways, they knew that this was not a home to enter. In the same story, we see the midwives just, midwives just blatantly refusing to kill the Jewish babies uh, at the first decree of the Pharaoh. They just didn't show up in time and the babies had already been born. And when confronted, they told the Pharaoh that the Jewish mothers were just too good at having babies and they didn't need the midwives. So by the time the midwives showed up, the babies had already been born. 
Prominently found in most stories of Passover is the angel of death, like I just mentioned. So who was this guy and who was he and why was he killing people? Historically, Judaism has attributed death to the angel of death. Over the years, new thoughts have appeared within Judaism, including the belief that death is simply the natural process at the end of the human life cycle, or any life cycle. The heart no longer beats, oxygen, oxygen can no longer permeate the brain, and a human simply ceases to exist. This belief is just as Jewish as the other ones. Like all Jewish things, though, even the angel of death is complicated. It is believed that the angel of death was created on the first day. There has also been believed that it is not a single angel, but many angels who all fall under the same name. Ironically, some sources cite their belief that the angel or angels of death were actually created in the darkness on the moment before the first day. So there's a couple of opinions here. And throughout the centuries, this angel of death has actually been associated with other figures like Satan, Samael, and others, like I mentioned earlier. However, this does not mean that they actually are these other figures. It's just an association, but things aren't definite. According to Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, death is the slowest of all the angels, except in times of an epidemic when he is the fastest. And let me say, this rings differently after living through and during a global pandemic. Like all angels, death is but an emissary of the divine, messengers of the decree of death. If you Google Angel of Death, Judaism, you'll be presented with the belief that the Angel of Death is most commonly associated with Azrael. However, the quote they're referring to is from Ivan Yazbek Hazad's book, Islamic Understanding of Death and Resurrection. The Google results come specifically from their book, meaning the association is from Islam, not Judaism. And I was unable to find any associations with Azrael in mainstream Judaism that weren't secondary associations. The physicality of death is also discussed. It is said that the angel of death is all eyes, and when a sick person is dying, the angel stands above him, sword drawn, with a drop of bile dangling from it. When the sick person sees the angel, he is shocked and opens his mouth. The bile falls into the open mouth, and from this, the person dies. From this, the person deteriorates. From this, his face turns green. There are variations of this. Sometimes people say it's poison, but sometimes it's seen as bile, like we mentioned. It does depend on the mythology. In some other mythologies, he wears a mantle that allows him to change his appearance. In the Testament of Abraham, he appears as a dragon with seven dragon heads. This one is interesting, and I wish that I had time to research it a little bit more, um, specifically whether or not it was impacted by Greek mythology, as multi-headed dragons and appearance-changing items were popular in Greek mythology as well. Maimonides, however, was on the ever constant mission of demystifying Judaism. And he instead chose to rationalize the angel of death and transforming it from an entity to, quote, the life-denying evil force that lur lurks in the human psyche. This is in part due to a Talmudic tractate that theorizes that Satan, the evil inclination, and the angel of death are one and the same. While Maimonides was determined to erase any aspect of Judaism that he found non-rational, whether or not for his own edification or for the protection of Jews as a whole, the conceptualization of the angel of death persisted. But because the angel is most often conceived as merely a messenger, not the ultimate master of death, it is possible to thwart the decree if the divine sees it fit. This is where things like the methodology we listed above would fit in.
It is important to note that there are some thoughts that the angel of death starts acting of its own accord in certain times or that the angel of death, quote unquote, goes rogue. These are, again, part of the variations in Jewish beliefs. So there we have it. That is the first installment of a three-part series discussing death. I know that this is a heavier episode and it's going to be a heavy series with the next two also being about death. But after that, I promise we're moving on to some lighter topics and you can send me an uh, email or you can leave in my contact box if you have a specific episode or topic you want me to cover. So before we get to sourcing, I want to say thank you to someone who left a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to librarian Avi who left a really sweet review. It really made me smile. I promise I read every single one of the reviews. Plus the reviews on Apple Podcasts specifically, but downloads and subscribes and follows on any podcast platform are hugely helpful for boosting this platform and making it what it is. Uh, so make sure to follow, subscribe, download, and leave a review. You can follow me on all of your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can stay up to date with me on Instagram at Jewitches, Twitter at the Jewitches, and sign up on my website, which is Jewitches.com. Before we get into sources, I want to remind you all that you can find them in the description of this episode. The reason I mention this is I have two articles um, from Digital Commons and JSTOR that I don't remember the names of, and I have the links to them. So there is a taylorfrancis.com article um, by David Kramer on death and rabbinic Judaism. Then we have the two, the JSTOR article and the Digital Commons article, Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, we have Divination, Magic, and Healing, The Book of Jewish Folklore, Jewish Magic and Superstition by Joshua Trachtenberg, Sweetening the Sick and Healing the Spirits, Ritual and Medical Lore of Sephardic Women, MyJewishMorning.com articles on popular superstitions and the Angel of Death, JewishVirtualLibrary.com, Angel of Death, and TheForward.com, Can an Orthodox Charity Help Save Lives in This Man's Church? Thank you all so much for listening. I am so excited to be back. I will see you all next time. Bye-bye.